Peter, an apostolic five-star general, Jesus Christ, writing this letter under inspiration, so it's timeless scripture, originally to those who reside as aliens, and that word in the original means uh, parepidemois, exiles, uh, people who are estranged from their homes and have been forced to flee away somewhere else. These are Christians who have been persecuted in and around Syria, uh, Antioch of Syria, and they're now living in what we would call Turkey. So they've lost their jobs, they've lost their pensions, uh, they've lost access to their extended families, and they're scattered throughout regions uh, named by the Romans, what we would say Turkey today, regions then known as Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, which is the far western part of Turkey, the way we call it today, and Bithynia, who are chosen, rejected by the world, but chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, to obey in faith Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Our sin imputed to him and judged his work imputed to us when we believe. Uh, May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Now, that's the beginning of the book, and it's important that we read the whole book with this audience in mind because he's writing to people who are living their faith under fire and as somebody once said around here every christian you're going to bump into anthony is either in a crisis just coming out of a crisis or just about to go into a crisis and so uh don't feel like you're special when you feel your faith is under fire because for the last two thousand years most christians have faced that sometimes much more severely than we ever have in a physical sense now, the purpose statement of this book is right in the middle of it, and in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, he tells you his purpose for writing the book. And here's my paraphrase of that. As spiritual aliens, they're not just political refugees or re- refugees because of their faith and persecution. All of us as believers are spiritual aliens and short-timers on earth. Christians should not, not be controlled just by our emotions and our feelings, but we should consistently live our faith centered on the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you're a Baptist or Presbyterian or a Lutheran or independent Bible church person, you should live your life consistently centered on the one who saved you, live for the one who died for you, so that believers who slander us because we are Christians will see the reality of Christ in our lives, whether we're a dentist or a uh, a carpenter or an engineer or a police officer or a garbage man, it doesn't matter, that people can see we're different and can see the reality of Christ in our lives and ultimately come to faith and glorify God by coming to him. That's the purpose statement as the writer states it. Here's the take-home punch of the book as I read it. This book is saying to Carla Buchanan and to Phyllis Davis and Brad McCoy, As Christians, we are to trust and obey the Lord now as TDY, the military, that's temporary duty. TDY is temporary duty. We are to trust and obey the Lord now as TDY exiles on earth, encouraged by a joyous anticipation of being at home with our risen Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. And as I get older and more of my friends pass and they're in heaven, it just makes going to heaven that much sweeter because... We look forward to a glorious reunion. Now, it's very important to realize as you go through this book, this is not a list of commands that you can try to obey to earn 
salvation with God. Okay, God doesn't grade on a curve. He grades based on a cross. And all of us have fallen short of our own standards, much less God. So we're not in any position to give God anything to earn salvation. The work of salvation was done for us once for all by our Lord Jesus Christ, this perfect, righteous substitute, the God-man Savior who's the mediator between God and man. And because Christ died for uh, David's sins and Lloyd's sins and Kay's sins and Sherry's sins and Brad's sins, we don't have to die in our sins. Uh, Jesus died for our sins, but the message of Easter is he's not dead anymore. Uh, he's the resurrected Lord, and if you're looking for life after death, you should look to the one who has lived, died, and been resurrected as the Savior. So uh, just realize as I read this book, this is not a set of exhortations that would be nice for people to try to do. These are uh, instructions as to how believers should think and live their lives when their faith is being threatened and chastised and, and second-guessed and even vilified. Okay. So if I want to be a little bit more uh, specific, we might say con- convicting as to what this book is saying overall to us, I think it's saying, hey, Steve, keep on trusting and obeying the Lord even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason, even when your feelings are saying there can't be any earthly reason because it's always uh, you're always premature to second-guess God because you don't have all the information. You're never going to have enough information to second-guess God legitimately, even though it's very tempting to. So keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, Phyllis, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason to keep on trusting and obeying the Lord. That's your standard operating procedure. So what do I do when I'm at the end of my rope? I think you tie a knot in faith, and you keep on trusting and obeying the Lord, even when there doesn't seem to be any reason. Uh, oh, Brad, you haven't suffered like I have. No, I probably haven't. I've probably suffered in other ways. <laughs> but look at what uh, 1 Peter says to us in uh, chapter 2 on this theme. Verse 21. You've been called for this purpose, to do the right thing and have people say nasty things about you, or to live a nice, healthy life and, and to have it cut short by illness. Uh, this is the way... It is in a sinful, fallen, broken world. You've been called for this purpose, to live your faith in the midst of those kind of challenges, since Christ also suffered for you, not just buying your salvation, but leaving us an example about how to think and live in the face of suffering, to follow in his steps. And realize, none of his suffering had anything to do with his personal sin, because he had none. But look at verse 23. Our Lord Jesus, while being reviled, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But here's the thing. He kept entrusting himself to God the Father, the one who judges righteously. So keep on trusting, obeying the Lord, even when there doesn't seem to be any earthly reason, because there's all kinds of heavenly reasons to do that. Now, that's a a breakdown of the book, and that purpose statement we read is right in the middle of that. So I like to think of the purpose statement as the meat in the hamburger. So we have a top bun and a bottom bun, and today we're going to finish the top bun, which talks about uh, in the face of faith under fire, it summarizes Christian faith, what we believe, and it surveys Christian works, how we should behave. So we're going to look at the last part of that today in verses 6 through 10 of chapter 2. So go ahead and turn to chapter 2, 
verses 6 through 10, please. And I think the essence of that passage is this. Our faith in Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, makes you a key part of God's salvific program. And with this great blessing comes great responsibility, or even boil it down even a little bit more, uh, Mimi. Recipients should be participants. Uh, rather than reading about church history, we need to make some. <laughs> you know, uh, recipients of great blessing should be participants. And talking about uh, recipients spiritually, as Americans, we have an incredible heritage, which is, you know, drifting into fogginess in the American consciousness, which is a very tragic thing. A wise person was just reminding me of that a few minutes ago. But let's uh, pray for teachability today and remember uh, our firefighters and our police officers, peace officers, and our active military, and pray that uh, the Holy Spirit who inspired this text will illumine it to us so we can believe it and live it out. And uh, um, Ken, if you would, lead us in prayer in that direction, would you? Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, to warm up our capacity for abstract thought here before we dive into God's Word, uh, this is a picture I took... Uh, Last Sunday, after Easter services, and Cooper, our oldest grandson, uh, put on the bunny ears in honor of the celebration and was coloring furiously on the dining room table as his mother, or grandmother, I should say, was working her fingers to the bone to prepare a delicious Easter uh, lunch for us. But with that in mind, uh, top five signs that Easter bunny might be dangerous. Uh, number five, bye. The year 2019, he wants to retire from his Easter ministry to focus on a new full-time ministry as the 24-7 personal hairstylist for Ron Miller, James Mitchell, and Brad McCoy, none of whom have much hair. Number four, look, I'm not going to waste your valuable time going over the many hundreds of ways I could warn you about the dangerous nature of the Easter Bunny. I'm just picking five of them here. Uh, He constantly spreads malicious rumors in a pathetic attempt to undermine the critical ongoing ministry of the tooth fairy. And once you start, you know, attacking people like that, I didn't say these were like funny or anything. I, they're just an attempt to warm up your capacity for abstract thinking. Uh, next year he's decided rather than filling kids Easter baskets with jello, colorful jelly beans, he will fill them with pale colored lima beans. Michelle Obama had left a final executive order but they had to get rid of the jelly beans. No more. And make it rescinded, though. Number two. For some odd reason, he can't seem to stop writing long, complicated love letters to Maxine Blystone. <laughs> and finally, the number one sign the Easter Bunny might be dangerous is, tragically, last Thursday, the Las Vegas Police Department discovered the body of the late, great Ronald McDonald in the trunk of the Easter Bunny's world-famous pink-and-green bunnymobile. Okay, I knew I was going to have to have a disclaimer there. So uh, to assure any of the friends and family of the Easter Bunny who happen to be present today, let me tell you, I don't really think the Easter Bunny is necessarily that dangerous. And this is uh, Peter and Cooper Friday a week ago, and they got here soon enough Friday that I could take them to Cameron University Duncan to meet the Easter Bunny in person. So, yeah. 
Okay, let's look at our passage, and uh, we're going to see that recipients of God's grace should be participants in God's program, or our faith in Christ makes us key parts of that program. With that great blessing comes great responsibility. Okay, and let's uh, just for some context, go back to chapter 1, verse 22. Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Aaron, you can do this, in other words, as a believer. So start doing it. You know, fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable. It's not just a physical thing or a behavior modification thing. But you've been born again supernaturally with imperishable, eternal, spiritual seed through the living and enduring word of God for... And as we dedicate the memorial in a few moments, you know, this is the thing. We're not worshiping these individuals. We're going to remember. We're going to appreciate God's working in them and remember that uh, life on earth is very temporal. All flesh is like grass. All human accomplishments, human lives are like grass. And it's glory like the flower of the grass. Very temporary, very fragile. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy hypocrisy and uh, envy and all slander, which means some of them are putting on and expressing malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, put that away, punt that away. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. Move it from your head to your heart, too, and out your lips and your feet, that you may grow in respect to salvation. Since, that's first-class condition in the original Greek, which means if and it's true, since you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. And coming to him now as a believer to worship him as a living stone. Jesus is the living stone. Talking about paradoxes. Which has been rejected by men, people generally, with many specific exceptions, but which is choice and precious in the sight of God. (coughs) Excuse me. You also, as living little stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices really our whole lives giving back to the one who saved us, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture, and we're going to start looking at 6 through 10 here in a moment. But this is contained in Scripture, and he's talking about a passage in Isaiah 28. You've got a New Testament writer quoting the Old Testament Scripture as authoritative long before the Council of Nicaea. This is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, in Jerusalem, a choice stone, this is God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, a precious cornerstone, and the one who believes in him, that's pistuo, Tom, that's active receptive trust, will not be disappointed. People will let you down at times. The Savior will not do so. This precious value of the Lord Jesus, then, is for you who believe. Other people use it, use him as a cuss word, or they totally redesign him to fit into their system. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which God saw as choice and the basis of the whole program, the choice which the builders rejected, that is the human religious leaders rejected, ironically was the very cornerstone of God's program. Uh, the choice stone of God's program, the Savior, in fact, is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense for many. I mean, uh, people love Jesus in the generic. They don't like specifically who he is. They don't like the idea that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one gets to God except through him. They don't like the fact that he's the unique incarnation of God, the God-man Savior. They like to see him as a 
kind of a trendy liberal social reformer. I like to see him as a uh, virtuous martyr, when in fact his death was a substitutionary atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world. So he, he in his reality, is offensive to people, generally, and uh, causes them to stumble. Uh, for they stumble because they're disobedient to the word. They were called unbelievers before, and that's the word that means they just refuse to obey the call of the gospel to believe in Christ. They either reject him totally or they totally redefine him. And to this doom they were appointed. But you, and he's talking to the readers of this book, and I'm talking to everybody in this room, Aaron and Kimberly and Stan and Jenny and uh, uh, Olga and Danny, every believer in the room, male or female, young or old, Jack. I think Jack wanted us to do Cornerstone, James, because he'd been reading ahead in First Peter. Is that possible? I'm glad somebody keeps an eye on James for me there, Jack. Thank you. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Every believer in this room is a priest. Okay, Priests are not special individuals on this side of the cross. We're all priests. We represent ourselves before God and before others. We make up a holy nation. We're a people of God's own possession so that we may complain and whine and criticize and critique uh uh-uh. The reason we've been saved is to serve and primarily to live with our lives and our lives such that we proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you, us, out of darkness into his marvelous light. So it's not just evangelists, missionaries, or pastors, or youth ministers, or song directors that are supposed to be involved in that task. For you once were not a people, you were not part of the set of the ecclesia, the church of the living God, regardless of denomination, color, country, or culture, But now you are part of the people of God through faith in Christ. You had not received mercy that will transcend your funeral, but now you have received mercy that will transcend your funeral. Wonderful passage, and it breaks down into three parts. We're going to see who Jesus is in the salvation program of God. We're going to see what we are in Christ, and we're going to see how we are to express what we are in Christ. So I would say... And if you're a believer this morning, uh, David Bearden, uh, verse 9a tells you who you are in Christ. Verse uh, 9b through 10 tells you how you express that. Okay, And it all centers on your faith in who Jesus Christ is. So let's look at that. Look at verses 6 through 8. Let's read that again. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion, quoting Isaiah 28:16, a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he or she... Regardless of color, country, or culture, who believes in him will not be disappointed. You trust in him for salvation, he gives you salvation. We saw the a thief on the cross who we said last week wasn't a thief. The Romans didn't crucify thieves. Who did the Romans crucify in the first century? Terrorists, rebels, right? So we got the terrorist on the cross who'd probably broken all Ten Commandments multiple times. Uh, who expresses active receptive trust on Christ. He doesn't offer to give him anything. He doesn't even call him Lord. He just says, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. I mean, that's his active receptive trust, childlike faith. The one who believes in him will not be disappointed. How would he know that guy didn't get disappointed? What did Jesus say to him? He gave him immediate assurance of salvation. Today you'll be with me in paradise. This precious value of the Lord Jesus Christ is for those who believe. People like probably most of us. But for those who disbelieve, and when, I think when you first come to faith as a nine-year-old kid, when I first came to faith, but I mean even like people like Bob Shallot who come to faith in their 80s, 
once you know, once they get to see it, once they see the thing, who Jesus is, and how great this is, the thing that blows their mind is, why doesn't everybody else see this? Why doesn't everybody else believe? I mean, isn't that the way you think? And as somebody like Gene, who got saved a year before I got here 29 years ago and kind of never got over it, some of us kind of get over it, you know, uh, you kind of get used to the fact that a lot of people could care less about uh, what we're believing about Jesus and the fact they take offense at it. But if you've ever wondered about that, okay, if you've wondered, golly, is this really, if it, this was for real, wouldn't more people believe it? Well, the Old Testament says people will not believe it. Even after the Messiah comes in his person and his fullness, a lot of people are going to reject it. Uh, and right now we've got the 1026 coming, coming through here. So you can't hear. All I'm trying to do here is bring the word to the people, folks, okay? And the train, every week it comes by. I know this is a part of the conspiracy. But uh, it's not easy to do what I do. Uh, This precious value, then, is for you who believe. And let's never forget that. But for those who disbelieve, this is offensive. And ironically, the stone which the builders, the religious foundations of Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, uh, you know, whatever you want, uh, reject Jesus in his fullness, but he's the cornerstone of the whole program of, of God for salvation. Uh, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And these folks stumble because they have not believed the call, have not obeyed the call of the gospel to believe in Christ. And yet that fits into the program too. Okay, Look back at verse 6. This is contained in Scripture. The Greek text literally says, it stands in the Scripture. And so that ends the argument. The question is, what did the Scripture just say? Entegrafe. Uh, you know, you've got a New Testament writer here, Sherry, quoting the Old Testament as authority. And once you... Now, watch this. This is the problem. The Bible doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means by what it says the way it says it. So when Jesus says, I am the door, uh, talk about... You want to confuse somebody who's learned English as a second language? You want to confuse them? Tell them the door is ajar. That confuses people, man. Okay? But uh, when Jesus says, I'm the door, it doesn't mean he's a piece of wood on hinges. He means he's the way of access to God and eternal salvation. And uh, so he's quoting scripture and that's it in his mind. There's no debate about the battle of the Bible. Interesting. You might say, well, that's Old Testament stuff. He's looking back at the Old Testament. How about the New Testament stuff? Look at Second Peter 3. And realize with the ink still wet on most of Paul's letters that are New Testament letters, Second Peter, written in about 64, uh, 65 AD, says this about Paul's letters that are part of your New Testament. Look at Second Peter 3, verse 14. He's summing up and he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things we've been talking about, be diligent to be found by him, Christ, in peace, get along with one another, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, opportunity to live and share the truth of salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote 13 New Testament documents, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, also in all of his letters, Romans, etc., 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, speaking in those letters that we consider New Testament scripture, of these same kind of things, in which there are some things hard to understand. As Aaron, you know what that means? That means James and I have job security, because there's some stuff hard to understand. And just like when you have dental problems, you know what? If your tooth hurts and you just need a toothpick or, or, or a 
dental floss, I can fix that. If you have something more serious, you need to see great practitioners of the dental arts, like my man, uh, Dr. Aaron Buchanan. Can I get 5% off next time? Okay, thank you. Kimberly, keep an eye on him, okay? Don't let him get the big head. Uh, but watch this. This is, this is uh, Peter referring to Paul's letters while they're both still alive, and the letters are circulating, and we haven't had a council in Nicaea in 325 to say all that extra stuff that's written by heretics isn't scripture. They didn't make the New Testament scripture any more than Newton invented gravity. He just They just recognized the scriptures that went back to the apostles. But watch this, what he's saying here. He says, uh, in, in Paul's letters, there are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and stable distort, as they do with the rest of the scriptures. Okay? So, you know, Steve, you've been reading First Peter. You've noticed how many times he refers to the Old Testament scripture, scripture, scripture. It says in the scripture, that's it. Now Peter is referring to Paul's stuff as scripture. Boom. It's scripture as soon as it hits the page, man. The church didn't make it. You don't have any church without scripture. It wasn't the church made the scripture. The scripture made the church or the truth of the scripture. Go back to First Peter 2. That's really important when he says this is written in scripture over and out. Whatever this says, it will... Uh, be binding to us as believers. And this is an oracle statement where the prophet quotes God saying, Behold, I'm going to lay in Jerusalem a choice stone, a precious stone. The Messiah, Jesus, is going to be the whole basis of the salvation program of God. And the one who believes in him will not be disappointed. And you got a uh, articular present active participle there, just like in John 3.16. The one, the one who believes, male, female, rich, poor, Religious, irreligious, will not be disappointed before God, will not be put to shame before God. You may be put to shame before man because of your faith in Jesus, but uh, not before God, now or after your death. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. That's the way we receive salvation, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God, not of works, so there's nothing for us to brag about. But for those who disbelieve, and there are some, in fact, it's the majority of people in the world, the stone which the religious builders of Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, rabbinic, Judaism, rabbinic Judaism rejected, ironically, is the very cornerstone of the whole program, uh, and yet he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Uh, you have actually uh, several passages in the Old Testament referred to here, Isaiah 28.16, about the cornerstone. Uh, you've got Psalm 118.22 in that statement, which says the stone which the builders rejected became the cornerstone. And then you have a reference to Isaiah 8.14 in the uh, statement, the Messiah would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. But uh, Psalm 118 is not real familiar in my mind. It's not one I read a lot, probably maybe not familiar with you to you so much. But it is very strategic in the mind of our Lord and in uh, the mind of Peter. And go back to Matthew 21, and you're going to see the Lord cite this. And Peter would have heard Jesus cite this. And so I'm sure that uh, statement just was welded into his his mind uh, from that point on. And now, you know, 30 years later, when he writes his letter, first letter, he, he cites it. But notice... Uh, Matthew 21, verse 42, Jesus says, and he's interacting with the religious leaders in Jerusalem just a few days before the crucifixion. Jesus said, did you never read in the scriptures, you know, uh, 
Psalm 118. The stone which the builders rejected. Sound familiar? This became the chief cornerstone of the whole thing. You know, I am speaking to you, am he kind of thing. Uh, and it's marvelous in our, this came about because the Lord is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, and really he's teaching scripture here, they thought he was talking about them. <laughs> See, they got that one. They were right. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet, so they got to arrest him at night a few days later because they couldn't do it in public because nobody would put up with it. Look at Acts chapter 4. And when you think about reading about things Peter is saying or doing, you might think of the Gospels. You might think of First and Second Peter, but sometimes we forget he's the prominent figure in the first um, 11 chapters of the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles. So look at Acts 4.11. This is the second time they get arrested for preaching Christ in Jerusalem. And it took a lot of guts for these guys to preach Christ in Jerusalem because just a few months before, their leader had been brutalized and crucified. And that could have happened to them too. But once you realize that life after death is for real and it's found in Jesus Christ and you've got it, you can become not reckless, but fearless. And you can become focused, right? So this is one of my favorite things in the book of Acts. But uh, uh, look at verse 11 just for brevity of time here. Peter, after being basically indicted for telling people Jesus was the cornerstone, the Messiah, the Savior that had been promised in the Old Testament, uh, he just says again to them, the Sanhedrin here, uh, he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders. He didn't want them, Olga, he didn't want them to miss. The builders is them. And they rejected the cornerstone, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. Buddha can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. Uh, for there is no other name, nor under, nor other person uh, under heaven that's been given among men whereby we must be saved. Wow. Go back to First Peter. So, you know, something we might miss because it's just mentioned in passing, right? The stone which the builders rejected became the very cornerstone, always was, uh, is something that the Lord thought was important. He taught. Peter mentions it in Acts, mentions it again. Uh, and the chief cornerstone, ironically, would be a stone of stumbling and will be offensive to many people. We don't have to be offensive in the way we present it and live it. And, you know, I tend to get a little sarcastic sometimes under fire, and, and that's not good. In fact, what does First Peter say about that very thing, Stan? I know you know this. Look at uh, verse 15 of chapter 3, First Peter 3. 15, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that's in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. So uh, you share him uh, everywhere by the way you live. When, uh, when opportunity rises, use your lips, but be kind and, and, and respectful, you know. And sometimes I get a little sarcastic and that's, that's not good. Go back to uh, chapter 2 please. So that's who Jesus is. Now, if you look at this passage, the way I, I tried to break it down for you in my notes there, you've got the, the plus and the negative. You've got the people who believe won't be disappointed. The precious value of the Savior is for those who believe. So he repeats himself there. 
But for those who disbelieve, it's just the opposite. For those who are disobedient to the call of the gospel to believe, they stumble over the very one that's designed to save them. And that terminology sounds a lot like one of Peter's best friends says, or, or, or records in his gospel. You read statements like this in the gospel of John. Uh, of course, we all know 3.16, but 3.18 says, He who believes, and he there is the generic he, it means he or she, the person uh, who believes in Christ is not judged. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. He who does not believe has been judged already, already stands uh, judged in their sin because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten. That's uh, monogenes means unique, only one of its kind. It's not only begotten, it's unique. The visible, uh, the visible Incarnation of God takes place through the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of Trinity. Uh, John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but the one who does not obey the call to believe. It's the same terminology Peter's using here. Believe, believe, don't believe, don't disobey, disobey the call to believe. I will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So verses 6 through 8 talk about who Jesus is in the salvation program of God. Uh, he's the Savior. He did the work. S-A-S, substitutionary atoning sacrifice, validated by L-B-S-R, literal bodily supernatural resurrection. He's the object of saving faith. Now let's look at what we are in Christ. Just the very first part of verse 9. But you, now you all know that uh, you've got, uh, in Oklahoma you got y'all and all y'all. And in the Greek this is all y'all. So this isn't just singular, but all y'all who are believers are a chosen race. All of y'all who are believers uh, are a holy priesthood. All y'all are a holy nation. All y'all are a people for God's own possession. So he's using um, collective group terms here. And I think sometimes we miss that because we tend to think, uh, you know, we come to faith one at a time. You're not God doesn't have any grandchildren. He only has children, right? And, and we're going to die and face God one-on-one. Uh, through the blood of Christ, we're going to have no condemnation there. But uh, we've been called to be on a team. And he uses all these Old Testament categories in a New Testament context, emphasize the similarities despite the distinctions. But all these collective terms are consistent with the fact that we're supposed to clump with other believers. Okay, One stick, easily broken, many sticks, not so much lashed together. One thing I love about what Aaron and Kimberly did, they went, you know, he, he just blew through uh, OU dental school with some of the highest grades ever. At least that's what his mom told me. I don't know. <laughs> Gets his degree. It's not easy to do that. Some of us got halfway through dental school and quit because of eye issues, you know. So, uh, but I, I did, I, I did uh, several first class amalgams on our pastor's wife at the time and then she went to Africa. Uh, so, and never got any complaints, you know. But the, she got eaten by pygmies, so she, I'm not, no, I'm kidding. No. That was the, my claim to fame as a dentist, yeah. But I mean, yeah, and then they moved to Ponca City, and despite, you know, some difficulties, you know, they really have felt led to, to, to live there in that community and make it better, just like their mom and dad did when they came to Duncan. They just, you know, made Duncan better. And, uh, they plugged into a good church, and Aaron and Kimberly realized, hey, it's our turn now. We're grown-ups. We can contribute 
to the adult world as opposed to just staying around as 30-year-olds watching, you know, the 60-year-olds, me and Dale trying to make stuff still work. And we're getting tired, aren't we? I mean, we got the wisdom now because we made enough mistakes. We know what not to do sometimes, but it's hard for us to do it. Now, I'm convinced that's the way God sees his church in a city like Duncan or the United States of America or the whole world. He's not worried about the nominations. He's focused on the cornerstone. If you put Christ right in the center of what you're doing as Church of Nazarene believers or Southern Baptist or Northern Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterians or, for us, TBF, a undenominational church, right, non-denominational, I think God likes his church to look like that. Now, we could change the denominations to put different ethnic groups or cultures or countries or languages. God likes his church looking like that. And so we're called to that uh, capital C universal church and to recognize that. But, you know, at a practical level, at some point, you've got to plug into a local church, a visible place where you've got believers of like mind and practice that uh, make it a priority uh, to encourage one another to love and good works, to have a balanced involvement. In basic things like maybe Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, evangelism, world missions, things like that. And, you know, this is our uh, 40th year as a church. And, uh, you know, God has provided for us. And, you know, we're not the best church in town necessarily. We're not the best church for everybody in town. Uh, there are a lot of good churches in Duncan, but we're one of those churches. And I think it's important uh, to find a good church. And when you find out it's not perfect, like the Birches did when they went to Massachusetts, they couldn't find a perfect church. They left an imperfect church. They went to Massachusetts, chose the best church they could find, and tried to make it better. And that's that's kind of the way it should work. And so we, we've got to kind of realize the church is like a canoe with a seat and a set of paddles for everybody, maybe a paddle for each person. And uh, too often, you know, some of us just sit in our uh in our seat and criticize other people's rowing technique. And we're, you know, if you're busy rowing, you're going to be too tired, too tired to probably complain too much about somebody else's weak rowing technique or be too impressed with your own. So, yeah, who we are in Christ, we are privileged characters. You know, the term PC now means politically correct. So I know that uh, if I were to say that I'm PC, I know that uh, Zane would probably swallow his bubble gum, but... Uh, you know, every believer in this room is a privileged character, but we're part of a team, and we're called to build that thing up, and uh, that's an important part of the Christian life. So who Jesus is, he's the Savior, he's the uh, object of saving faith. Who we are, every believer in the room, is a privileged spiritual character. Uh, we're part of a special set of people. Priests represent uh, God before man and, and women, and we can do that in the way we live. Uh, and we should, and not just by going to church on Sundays and Wednesdays. We're a holy people. That word nation, a holy nation, uh, is the word ethnos. We get ethnicity from it. It just means a, a group of people. Uh, the church, ecclesia, means a called out group of people. And we're people for God's own possession. We're God's people because of the work of Christ. Now let's look at verse uh, 9b through 10, the last part of this, how we are to express what we are in Christ. And I, I love this, and this is so helpful uh, when you want to second-guess God or you want to whine about minor things about other people uh, in and around the church, uh, notice that God's done all this great stuff for us and incorporated us into all these different categories, chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, one of God's people, so that the main thing we should do is proclaim 
the excellencies of him. Not of the pastor. You're not supposed to be the pastor or the youth minister's uh, agents and tell everybody how great we are or flip side, tell everybody how bad we are. Uh, that our main job is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And let me suggest that's the cornerstone person we talked about. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. For you once were not a group of this people, part of the people of God, but now you are the people of God. You once had not received that mercy, but now you have received mercy. Uh, the main reason God saves us, I'm convinced, is so we can live as representatives for him. So we're in sales, not management. I remember uh, my uh, my cousin Homer, who was my best man at my wedding, uh, had many wives. He, he had them one at a time, but he had four or five wives. But at his... Uh, at his second wedding, after I was ordained, he asked me if I would uh, do that wedding. And uh, that was the first outdoor wedding as a young pastor I'd ever been asked to do. So, of course, you know, you do kind of walk through the night before. And it's down in southeast Texas where it rains every day practically. So outdoor wedding's not good. Uh, but uh, we practiced, you know, and this is before you had a phone that told you exactly when it was going to start raining the next day. So we were kind of hoping it wouldn't rain. And sure enough, Saturday, you know, at noon or whenever it was, it just pours down rain. So we had to kind of, kind of come up with a plan B at the last minute and kind of do it in the living room of a little house and anything. But that's the first time I realized, you know, when you, when you are a minister and people think you kind of represent God, you know, like a life insurance salesman, I guess, represents State Farm or something. When, when God does something they don't like, they kind of get mad at us. And I always say, you know, I'm in sales, not management. And that's, I, I really, uh, said that to them, cause that bride was very unhappy with me that it rained, you know? Because, you know, she had asked me to pray that it would not rain. And, and the thing about it is, I did pray it wouldn't rain, but you know, that's not my call. I'm in sales, not management. And I would say, uh, I mean, it's a good, good thing to remember. Uh, because we're saying prayer is a grace, uh, channel of communication where we seek and submit to God's will recognizing our prayers are part of the process he uses to work out that will. But he doesn't say, if you tell me, don't let it rain tomorrow, Brad, I won't let it rain. He's got a, the farmer just a mile away needed rain that day, you know. That's more important than that wedding, which only lasted. The, the wedding's always beautiful. The marriages are sometimes bad. That one only lasted two years. So I'm actually glad, kind of glad it got rained out. Should it, I think God was saying, don't do it, you know. So, but we did it anyway. It's my, my bad on that. But, uh, yeah, we're in sales, not management. I mean, we're here to proclaim the excellencies of Jesus, not just to get our preferences. We are to be contributors, not critics, participants, not just spectators. We talked about Bud Wilkinson a couple weeks ago. Givers, uh, givers, takers, not just takers. How about givers? What's the opposite of takers? That's givers, right? Okay. Uh, that's a mistake on that. Servants, not supervisors. And look, look again at this purpose statement with that in mind, okay? You know, those who have uh, been uh, recipients of grace, of great things are to be participants in the ongoing program. And, you know, we're, we've been saved so we can proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And look what he says here in the purpose statement. As spiritual aliens, short-timers, we should not be controlled by our emotions and feelings. We should consistently have our faith centered on our Lord Jesus Christ so that unbelievers who might not understand us, who might slander us, because we're believers, we'll see the reality of our faith, you know? Proclaim the excellencies of the one who uh, has saved us. So recipients should be participants. So, I mean, think about this. Carol Wanzer 
is a member of a chosen race of people, a chosen set of people. She's a royal priest, I guess a royal priestess. Uh, she's a member of a holy nation, ethnos, a, a group of people. Uh, she's one of God's own possessions at a relational level. So she should, and she does, live a life that essentially proclaims the excellencies of the one who saved her. You know, That's your basic job description as a Christian. Now, the average American Christian thinks, well, James is supposed to do that, and Brad's supposed to do that, and certainly Dale, he's an elder, he's supposed to do that, but I'm just an average Christian. Ain't no such thing as an average Christian. Every single Christian is an incredible miracle when you realize all the theology God has to do to save anybody, much less somebody as messed up as, as me, right? So, um, boom. Real quickly, um, Let's look at Psalm 73. There's there's a lot of passages of Scripture where you have somebody second-guessing God and getting really upset at God because of so much unfairness in the world, and that's the one of the points of the Bible. The world's a very unfair, spiritually dark place. It's broken. It desperately needs to be totally replaced with something much better. I'm talking about uh, repeal and replace. We desperately need repeal and replace of this fallen universe. And if you read the book, you find out there's a plan for that to happen. It's going to happen. But Psalm 73 is like the book of Job, I should say. The book of Job in one little chapter, uh, 28 verses, one kind of medium-sized chapter. But look at verse 21, and look at look at how he turns here. After being mad at God about the fact that bad things happen to him and so many good things seem to happen to unrighteous people, that's basically what he's mad about. After he rethinks it, he says, hey, when my heart was embittered at you, God, and I was pierced within, I was like a dumb animal. You know, I just didn't have enough information to legitimately second-guess you. I was like a senseless, ignorant, dumb animal. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, even when I was second-guessing you and whining, I'm continually with you through that whole time because you've taken hold of my hand. It's not me holding on to you. You're holding on to me. It's a whole different deal. And... With your counsel, regardless of what happens to me in my circumstances, you're going to guide me and afterward receive me to glory. That's the payoff, okay? Your life is a little blip on historic, in a historical sense. Eternity goes on forever, man. God's got all eternity to make everything right. And he's going to. He's going to. So you can't live in the now without functioning in or factoring in the not yet. So with your counsel, you're going to guide me and afterward receive me to glory. And then he says, who have I in heaven but you? I mean, you know, I've been to a lot of funerals, but I've never seen a U-Haul connected to a hearse. You know, you can't take any of your stuff with you, you know. And besides you, ultimately, I need nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart will fail. That's uh, just, just in the Hebrew. It's concessive. It means it's going to happen. Uh, and that's a promise nobody wants to uh, to claim. But I can tell you, Aaron and Kimberly, give it about 30 years, and you know, the worst, worst part of my morning is looking in that mirror and looking at that old guy shaving every day. It's pitiful, man. My flesh and my heart, I had hair when I needed it though. My flesh and my heart will fail if I live long enough. But God, you're the strength of my heart and my portion forever. There's forever again. That's, that's what the thing's about. For behold, those who are far from you, those who are seem to be profiting from all of the injustice and unrighteousness of the world now, uh, they're going to perish apart from faith in, in the Messiah. You destroyed all those who are unfaithful, who don't believe in you. But as for me, the nearness of God now is my good. That's the one thing I can depend on. 
And I have made the Lord God my refuge. And what's he going to do with it, Blanche? That he may proclaim the excellencies of him who saved him. You know, kind of what First Peter says, that I may tell of all your works. He's saying rather than complaining about what I don't like about the way things working out, which is he does for basically 20 verses, he says, my job is not to question God. My job is to share the good news about salvation in and through God, through the program of, of the Savior. We could say more about that, but that's, that's a pretty cool connection. But let's just say this as we close. Uh, we're looking at a lot of wonderful truth here, who Jesus is, what we are in Jesus, how we are to express what we are to communicate his greatness and our grace. And so recipients should be participants. And, and let me uh, say something for the home team here. How, how are you going to practically apply that? Well, how are you going to know places where you can participate uh, in the ministry of this church in ways to help us? Now, there are some people like Eric that probably needs, we're going to burn this guy to a frazzle, as they say in France. I mean, this guy and, and, and uh, Ray, I mean, we may have to put a memorial brick in for you right now before you die. Or By the way, Dale and Debbie are still very much alive, so Homer will explain the memorial bricks in a minute. But uh, uh, And we hope you'll be around for a while. But uh, And Dale looks pretty good, especially since he's got his teeth fixed. But when you have a dentist in the family, I mean, what's the deal with TBF and dentist? I mean, I mean, we got Dr. Buchanan, we got Dr. Corbin, Dr. Uh, uh, Duell graduates in two weeks. It's incredible, man. We've got... So you know what? When you see when you see Dale and Debbie's son, Doctor Corbin, and you see uh, Doctor Buchanan walking down the street, I, I want him to hear it. When you see uh, Doctor Corbin and Doctor Buchanan walk down the street, you know what you're looking at? A paradox. <laughs> A pair of docs. Yeah. You know what? Of course, we have the uh, the secret mission of the church on the front of the bulletin every week, so nobody will know what it is. But. Uh, you know, on the back of the last page at the bottom of the prayer request, uh, this isn't everybody who's in charge of stuff. A lot of stuff gets done that's not recorded on this list. But if you're wondering, where can I help, or how can I kind of help pull in the oars here? Uh, we've got a youth minister and a music minister, James Mitchell, who I bet can find some things for you to do in one or both of those areas. Uh, Gene, do we ever need extra volunteers to work with the kids? Does that ever happen? Yeah, it happens a lot, you know. Uh, keyboards, I mean, you too could take piano lessons in four or five years. You could help, uh, help us on that. Uh, uh, secretary, uh, nobody folds paper better than Maxine does, so you can't improve on that. Uh, Wednesday night, uh, PM, I mean, Eric and, and Ray do that for us along with Sue, who's recovering. We got to visit her, uh, yesterday in Oklahoma City, and she's much, much, much better, but she's still got a ways to go. But man, she was in rough shape, wasn't she, Kitty? Kitty, a good friend. Was, yeah. Say again? Okay. I, I thought she was on a fast track after, after we saw her yesterday, but it did not be that fast. That's great. Um, library. Sonia Skinner has valiantly promised to help us organize our library better, but it's a lot, there's a lot of stuff to go through. And so if you're interested in that, you can help her, talk to her. Uh, our monthly potluck to support the Mitchell's uh, adoption a process has been spearheaded uh, for a long time now by Janice Skinner and Michelle Franks. I bet they could use some help. Michelle, you ever need some help on that? Ever? Would you just like, do you like to just do it yourself? Just all of it by yourself? No. I bet you could help there. Now, some of us who don't cook help by not helping. But, I mean, it's just a um, website. Boy, the Birches who are over there, but probably back 
helping with the nursery and the kids. Uh, they're our webmasters. But uh, we get this world-class newsletter that comes out every month. And, uh, you know, this should win an award somewhere, okay? Uh, we maybe should have put a brick in honor of the newsletter out there. But uh, this newsletter kind of summarizes a lot of stuff that's upcoming in the in the next month. And you can look at that and see places you can plug into and help us with uh, as well. Uh, and then you can talk to and better pray for the elders and our deacons uh, who are not primarily supervisors, but really primarily super servants. That's really kind of the way they approach it. And that's what that's about. So you know, as we're going to go in a moment after we close in prayer and dedicate the uh, memorial pavilion, um, I think it's a nice passage. I didn't engineer it to do this, but this is a passage that tells us who Jesus is, who we should center on, who we are in Christ, and how we're to express it. And we're supposed to express it by, you know, making points for the team. You know, and one way we can do that is not just by sitting, soaking, and souring in uh, in church services, but also uh, being plugged in and putting some shoe leather into that. So let's close with some prayer. Father, help this to be uh, not just information, but uh, motivational and transformative truth that we might re-embrace and rededicate and recenter on our Lord Jesus Christ and be excited about what He's done for us, what He's going to do for us all eternity, and how we can actually uh, participate and in an active way for Your program in propagating the gospel, the way we live and the way we share our faith. Uh, thank you for each one who's here this morning. I pray for anyone here who's not from the depth of their heart, but their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone uh, for their salvation and forgiveness of sins. Keep their Open their eyes and be thy will to see and embrace Jesus and him alone as Savior. And for the rest of us, let us be renewed uh, to love and serve him. To your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.